You're listening to the Editorial Intelligence special broadcast from the Names Not Numbers Symposium. More information on namesnotnumbers.com. Can I introduce myself? I'm Helena Kennedy. And I have with me a very interesting panel of people for your breakfast delectation. Um, our subject this morning is the individual in society. And the question is, more dominant, more dominant than the group? And it seemed to me that it picked up on the theme that really was started by uh, some of our uh, uh, persons who came up on the screen yesterday uh, in the Hercules Hall, but also brought up by Alain de Bouton last night about the way in which individualism is promoted and celebrated, particularly if it involves success. But, of course, we also have the repeated claim that individualism and self-interest has become so dominant that it accounts for every societal ill, from bankers' greed to child neglect to our acclaimed rights-based culture. And so the question for us today really is about the question of balance between the collective interest and those of the individual, and ultimately, of course, what is the role of the state in all of that. And so I'm going to start um, with my first speaker, who's Robin White, who's the president of Engine. He is uh, the man from the agency, um, and, uh, and in fact, I've known him a number of years. He was right in there at the very beginning of a sort of great the great burgeoning of the advertising world in the 60s was there with the Satchis, with Tim Bell, uh, in that great creative moment. And so I'm going to put it over to you because Robin is somebody whose curiosity has taken him into lots of things, but particularly interest in the way in which we function and the way in which the brain works. Thanks, Len. Well, congratulations for all of you for turning up so early in the morning and give us a big round of applause to yourselves for just being here. The balance of the individual and the group in society, which we're now discussing, is an area where, where we have biology, political philosophy and ethics intersecting. And it's particularly appropriate to be discussing it here in the place where the prisoner was made, where the label number six uh, revealed the world where uh, the group was bullying, to use a contemporary word, the individual. And, of course, there's a paradox of filming that here in the place where Clough Williams Ellis, the yellow-stocking, the eccentric in plus fours, that I actually knew when I was working here over 40 years ago, before I went up to Cambridge, it was a very significant part of my own individual development, amongst other things, the place where my, uh, my virginity was lost. I look forward to finding a small blue plaque somewhere commemorating the event. Uh, nearby, of course, lived Bertrand Russell, the great champion of individualism, had actually written to him in my school days when my headmaster delivered a sermon promoting the, va the, the group over the individual. I was hugely indignant, wrote to Bertrand Russell asking his views. He wrote me back a letter, which I, I still got, and it says nothing of consequence is, created, is achieved except by an individual. But actually, over 40 years on, looking back, I have to say that those viewpoints, mine, the headmaster's, and I think even Bertrand Russell's, were oversimplistic. Uh, and I will start at the biological level. It's clear that once we move from the level of being an, an asexual cell to a sexual cell needing a mate, that was the moment when the group became vital to the individual. You have to find your mate uh, from that group. And even at the individual level, though an individual gene may be selfishly seeking its own perpetuation, it does so to use a metaphor actually used by Richard Dawkins uh, as rowers in a boat, all pulling together for the greater good, cooperating to give each other a better chance of, of, of survival by that exchange of genetic information otherwise known as sex. And it can be no surprise that just eight years ago, brain scan research showed that cooperation is actually hardwired into each of our brains and that cooperative behaviour actually triggers the reward circuitry of the brain. And this, of course, reflects the discovery of Robin Dunbar looking at early growth of brain size. There's a direct relationship to the size of the group in primates and early humans and the size of the brain. In fact, he's demonstrated we're actually wired up into big groups of about 150. 
A fact that's even now reflected in the number of names in average phone memory, the number of uh, um, people in a typical Facebook group, and almost the number of our names and numbers group here today. But this is not to say, despite all this biological support, that the role of the individual and the group, even in this biological uh, behaviour, is easy. We are social animals competing with other members of the group to get high-quality genes to allow our own genes a chance of being passed on. And each of us sitting here is an example of an ancestor successfully achieving that task. But as we move beyond the group, the biological group of 150, uh, and with its whole system of complex, cooperating, checking to avoid cheating and freeloading, as well as what is now called competitive altruism as the best way to signal the quality of our genes, as we move beyond that uh, to far larger groups, we enter the domain of political, political philosophy. We go from the small group to the tribal group and eventually to the nation state. And, and we find that as we function in these larger cooperative groups, this is something that our biology has not prepared us for. For at most 5,000 years, which is a millisecond in human evolutionary history, we've been learning to live in these large groups without the help of any biological programming to guide us. Modern societies are much larger groups than the small groups that characterize much of our, of our evolutionary past. So we've had to put in place regulations that, in effect, play the, the cheating, checking role that our brains are brilliantly wired to do between individuals in these early groups, but can be invisible when done between citizens, corporations, and government. And the next step, and this is the dangerous one that our theme addresses today, is when our structure moves beyond regulation as a version of the early biological regulation in small groups to an intervention where the collective group restricts the individual always allegedly in the best interest of that individual. And this is a fault line that has long been debated and I know will be discussed this morning. I just want to bring two perspectives that allow others to, to contribute, obviously. The first that we know from a vast amount of brain science, particularly the behavioral economics of Daniel Kahneman, that if you allow individuals free choice, they very often don't make very good decisions. Over thousands of years, our brains have been wired up with decision-making heuristics that favour speed of decision rather than a careful, reflective decision that might give us a better outcome. So we have a whole range of biases that have no real place in modern society. For example, we have a preference for sweet foods as sweetness indicated ripeness in a fruit. And when we only lived for 35 years in our ancestral environment, this preference did not create the obesity it might cause now because we only lived for 35 years, so it wasn't a problem. The entire financial crisis can be explained by our hyperbolic discounting system wired into our brains. Once more, believing that we're only going to live to 35, it entirely miscalculates the cost of running up debt, so maybe Gordon Brown can't be blamed after all. And we have a huge amount of behaviours deeply wired into our brain that are self-evidently not in our best interest. So is it in the individual interest to put in place mechanisms that will at least draw attention to our faulty processing and indeed find ways to limit the harm to ourselves of poor decision-making? And this, of course, takes us to the mot de jour, the word nudge and the concept of liberal paternalism that seems to me an attractive way to try to use the new learning about the brain's misbehaviour to nudge it into a better direction. But, you correctly say, what is the better direction? And this is where I think one of the new mechanisms that we have emerged in recent years I think is of huge importance. Transparency, the great gift to the individual that can be delivered by the web, is a can be a tool that protects the individual from any group, be it state, corporation or celebrity, and then cut it down to size. And I think that's crucial. There's a final issue uh, that makes the evolving role of the web as a transparency system, I think, even more crucial. And this is because of the breakdown of trust between individual and numerous groups, be they corporations or government. Now, our brains have several features that favour trust and punish cheaters. And we have systems that help us read people's minds, our empathy systems, so we can engage with people and develop trust with them. We have a special set of neurons called mirror neurons that allow us to empathise with each other and fundamentally to trust each other. But we've no mirror neurons that inform our relationship between individuals and corporations and individuals and governments. Look into their eyes and you can never tell what they're thinking. And the power of transparency created by the web and all that goes with it seems to be something that humans have evolved to ensure that we have a new way to regulate the relationship between the group and the individual. Transparency by the web can be the countervailing force that exposes big government, protects smaller citizens against 
cheating uh, and all those things which otherwise would not be exposed. And I think David Cameron is entirely right to focus so much on transparency, restoring the power of the people over government. And maybe David will have somebody to say that in a moment. That basic relationship between individual and group that I was talking about in the beginning were both are mutually dependent upon each other. I think can be replicated with the help of transparency at a higher level uh, between individuals and larger groups. Richard Dawkins used the term phenotype to describe all the effects that a gene can have on the outside world that may influence the chance of being replicated. And I can think we can see the web as a sort of phenotype that helps the genes of an individual survive by creating an external system that protects it against the bigger groups that could threaten or damage it. And we clever humans invented this far faster than the pace of glacial evolution would allow. So I think this transparency mechanism is absolutely crucial. I think liberal paternalism, um, scrutinized by the web, can really help us. And eventually, as happened in our early ancestral environment between individuals and groups, so individuals and bigger groups can cooperate together better with the help of this great innovation of the web delivering transparency. This is my contribution to your breakfast. Oh, lots of stuff in there. Um, I have to restrain myself as the chair. I think it makes an argument for law. Anyway, um, but I'm over to you, uh, David Davis. All of you will know David, great champion of civil liberties, um, has been a great ally of mine in, on those fronts, and, uh, and indeed uh, was a member of the Shadow Cabinet, took a courageous stand, which meant that he is no longer a member of the Shadow Cabinet, but I have no doubt that if there is a future Conservative government, it would only make sense to bring him back in. David Davis. Thank you for that kind introduction. Um, I, uh, in fact, I spend, uh, as Helena intimates, I spend a good, a good deal of my time trying to prevent governments using cruel and unusual punishments. So what we're doing holding you here at 7.15 in the morning, I don't know. Um, let me see if I can pick up on, on what Robin has been saying, because he's right. I mean, the mechanisms of modern society are incredibly crude. They, as he said, it's a sort of nanosecond in terms of evolutionary history. And the, in, in my view, the, I'll sit back from the microphone. In my view, the, the measure of a civilization is how well it optimizes this balance between the individual and the state, the individual and the group. Um, and it has been a, 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 an incredible period of rapid change for every, every society, least so for our own, but even so, even for us. Uh, I, when, when I was coming here yesterday, I was dashing out, I was doing some television, I, I dashed uh, past a, a, a house on the site of where a man called Robin Ask was, uh, was born. Robin Ask, you may or may not know, was the leader of the Pilgrimage of Grace, probably the earliest non-violent mass demonstration. 40,000 people objected to the, um, uh, the uh, nationalisation of the monasteries, I guess, under, under, under Henry VIII. Uh, and he had this non-violent demonstration. He was absolutely civilised about the way he presented this case. He was entirely deferential to the king. And, of course, within 18 months, he was hanged in chains. Now, I'm going to do the Today programme this morning. Hopefully, I will not meet the same end um, uh, because we have evolved in that period. In, in, you know, and that's 500 years. That's a mind blink uh, in, in, in terms of our, our development. So, you know, today, by comparison with, with Robin Ask, who was a commoner, we're all aristocrats now. We, are, we all have rights. Every, the, the most lowly of us all have rights that would have been seen as the rights of aristocrats, uh, a few, in fact, 300 years ago, let alone, let alone 500 years ago. So what about this, this, this balance? Uh, it's pretty obvious from my own political views and, and, and public stance that I take a very pro-individual stance. But that's not because uh, I'm a libertarian. It's because uh, I take the view that that has been the most optimal stance for any society to adopt over the years. I mean, the reason this tiny country was so powerful in all sorts of ways is because of the uh, acutely um, intelligent stance we ended up at by sheer, um, by, by sheer luck, 
because we didn't, nobody designed our, our, our social balance. Nobody designed uh, our jury trial system. Nobody designed habeas corpus. Nobody designed uh, the balances that we have. Against, in fact, nobody really designed, Robin, even transparency. It just, it just emerged. Uh, and so we have been uh, I- I- extremely lucky with that. And for us, uh, in, the, in British society, we have for longer than most had a, a, a balance that allowed us more freedom to enjoy our life, more freedom to create, more freedom to produce, more freedom to bring up our families than most. And the, but, but having said that, the, the differences are incredibly subtle. I mean, I'd start on this with something like, well, you know, why did we have the Industrial Revolution first? Well, that, that's in part freedom of speech, because that, that, that engenders freedom of ideas, uh, which incidentally along the way gave us better scientists like Newton. Uh, it's in part because of the other balancing matter between you and the state, namely how much control you have over your own property. Property rights were, were more subtly uh, uh, developed here than elsewhere. Uh, and so the differences between ourselves and the Germans and the French over, 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 over hundreds of years have actually been incredibly subtle but incredibly powerful, which is why uh, you know, I fight, and m- many of my colleagues, Helen, uh, Helena and, and many others, and thousands of us, fight so hard uh, over the sort of subtle changes uh, that, uh, that the, even this government has has talked about carrying through. Now, as I say, those, 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 um, that balance towards the individual, as I say, it's helped science, it's helped industry, helped our justice, our democracy, and all those things. Um, so what happens when you change the balance? What happens um, when you alter that balance, when a government sets about altering the balance? And it often does it in quotes, as Robin said, in our own interest. You know, it's in our interest to be protected from terrorists, in our interest to be protected from crime. Therefore, we've got to do all these things, give up our rights and so on. Well, it changes the balance, but as Robin intimated, it also changes the character of society, the nature of the people. <laughs> Sitting next to Sarah Church, well, I'm really loath to say this, but, you know, you can judge sometimes the nature of society by the nature of the people in the society. And I wasn't going to say anything about brash, <laughs> anything about brash Americans at all. Uh, but, you know, but you do meet. You know, I mean, you do meet. I mean, I used to be a foreign office minister. I, you know, I used to meet subtle Russians, but there weren't many of them. You, know? um, you, know, you do meet um, uh, people who, who, who engender that. That's not genetics. That's actually the nature of the society that has, that has created that amongst them. And it's interesting because um, Helena's uh, uh, organisation, Power 2010, did a survey recently of people's perspectives on this. And Robin was implicitly talking about sort of group wisdom programmed into us, group wisdom programmed into our, into our minds and our emotions. What's been interesting to me was you know, two or three years ago, I was, hmm, in despair is the wrong word, um, I was, I'm not quite sure what the mental equivalent is of shrugging my shoulders over the <laughs> mindset of Britain over the issues of freedom and the issues of personal rights and the balance of the state and the individual. Why? Because actually most of us are quite comfortable. The, the law doesn't impact on us very much. The state doesn't impact us on us very much if we're ordinary people most of the time. And so I thought they didn't care about jury trials or about habeas corpus or about all those, all those structural mechanisms that are built into our state that were being gradually eroded. She did the survey, was it two months ago, one month yeah. ago? It was astonishing, you know. 88% of people put, I think it was jury trial, I think, actually at the top of the things that they wanted to maintain. Not, it was ahead of you know, having a good hospital service, having a fast hospital service, and there's a great litany, almost everything that we would recognise as structural balances uh, in, uh, uh, between the individual and the state were up there because in the last couple of years, people had sort of clicked. Now, how had they clicked? Because the nature of society was altering and because that, and the point that Robin picked up, trust was altering, the trust between the state, between the individual and the policeman, the individual and the, uh, you know, the, the, all, the, all the, the bureaucrats they deal with and so on, that issue of trust was, was, was vanishing. And it seems to me, actually, it's going to be one of the great political uh, leitmotifs of the coming decade or so, is how we build a trusting society, because at the end of the day, a trusting society is the way you optimise this relationship between the individual and the state. I'll stop there.
Well, I'm going to uh, take us over now to our corporate man, Tim Jones. Tim is uh, uh, Vice President of Global Media Relations for Unilever and, uh, and really has had to look at the, the ways in which perceptions of the great corporate world um, affect how corporations work. I will do that partly, but can I just start by um, disagreeing vehemently with Robin? Um, the reason I chose sugar puffs this morning was a completely rational decision. Uh, I'm very glad I did because it had a Madeleine effect and took me back 35 years, I think. It was a wonderful uh, experience, and I recommend sugar puffs, and they are, there's no relation between sugar puffs and obesity, by the way. Um, I'm, I'm hugely, hugely gratified um, that in discussing this paradox of the ego, the self, the individual, the tribe, and the community, that there is no right answer. Um, otherwise, I'd feel very um, vulnerable being up here with so many huge brains if I didn't know the right answer. Um, and uh, on a quantum level, we're all the same anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, that would be a group decision. Yeah, I, <laughs> <laughs> and I was, I was thinking also of what um, Alan was saying yesterday when I was watching Wales play rugby last night, and the idea of the tribe, the community, and the individual is, um, is so exemplified there, where you have a group of 70,000 Welshmen um, uh, who are united in their, uh, uh, their aim, but a, 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 a group of Welshmen who come from North Wales who don't recognise the South Wellians, the West Wellians who hate the South Wellians, and um, the, those, those of us who are from Cardiff can barely even look at people from Newport. So within, <laughs> so within, the, within, within the tribe and the community, there's no such thing as anything other than the individual. Um, and my favourite comment of all, and I, ha- and I do, I do um, apologise for raising the intellectual level of this um, debate, uh, my favourite comment of the individual is, is the seminal Monty Python's life of Brian moment where um, 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 Brian opens his doors to see the crowd outside and he says you don't need me, you don't need to follow anyone and, they sh- and he said you're all individuals and collectively they all shout back yes we are all individuals and that, <laughs> and that to me is, that sums the story up very well can I just give two perspectives from a corporate point of view, not, a, not of corporate trust and authenticity because I'd love to talk about that too as a, as a, as a concept but just two, two quick um, uh, examples um, because we are at Unilever, amongst the world's biggest users of market research, amongst anything else. So we do actually know more about um, what most people want from their skin, their hair, their food, their diet, than pretty much anybody. And uh, coming back to David's point about, about the similarities which, which um, uh, bring us together, um, it is true. We have one product called uh, Axe or Lynx, which is a boy's body spray. Um, and boys of the age 15 to 19, the world over, have one thing in common, and it unites them with a passion, which is, of course, getting girls. The point is that whichever country or barrier you're in, they, they, have, they, have the same, they have the same needs. But one of the going to see body odour was the thing we shared. <laughs> well, we tell them. No, well, I won't say what we did. They all wanted blue plaque. We'll have to go looking for that. But one of, one of the um, one of the one of the big learnings we did last year, and some very big research was about uh, in the area of sustainability, climate change, environment, and whatever. And we found, um, not surprisingly, that individuals, i.e. societies of the world over, were disenfranchised from this issue. There is a huge issue, but they felt utterly impotent in the face of these big uh, global issues. And how could they play a part? What could they possibly do? Because all the stories they were hearing, all the media reports, were very much focused on... Um, the macro on governments, on government figures, on uh, industrial outputs of GDP and carbon um, uh, from, from global organizations. They felt very completely impotent. And then we came up with this idea that actually it is the individual who makes the individual decision. So you can make a difference, not just in your light bulb or whatever, but in, your, in the whole of your... Um, um, uh, of your, your consumption patterns, you can make a difference. And this concept, or this, this point, was hugely enlightening for most people, and they found that the idea or the concept of small actions make a big difference to be very, very empowering. So that's, that's, we're not there yet, but that's a very interesting, I thought, um, uh, change, how the individual can make a collective uh, uh, difference. And the, the last point I'd, I'd, I'd make on this um, is, again, echoing what Robin was saying about the, um, the speed of the Internet. Um, and we are now using crowdsourcing, which some of you may come across as techniques for finding best advertising ideas, where you kind of just go into the Internet or you just, and you sort of say, we're thinking of doing this. What do you think? And suddenly, the power of collective 
um, ideas is transforming. Unfortunately, the advertising has loved this because it means, I mean, they don't love this. I mean, it means potentially someone else is clever. out of business. Exactly right, and quel dommage. But no, it's, it's, it is it is, um, it is an interesting point. But it, is, it is using modern social techniques and therefore the power of collectivizing the individual to create a collective whole. I'll leave it there. Thank you. I just want to, before turning to Sarah, reinforce what you just said, Tim, about um, the ways in which, while there is this sort of uh, uh, burgeoning of individualism in some ways, that when the power 2010 uh, did work on uh, how citizens felt about elections and political systems and political parties and politicians and so on, one of the things that people kept saying to us was that they actually felt powerless. They felt their voice didn't matter. They felt that actually voting didn't do it. And, and many people, despite this way in which they can exercise individual, you know, individualism, really feel that when it comes to major stuff, politically, globally, that they, they, have, they feel too small and they feel very powerless and impotent. So um, now I'm going to take us over to Sarah Churchwell. Chair, Sarah is a, a senior lecturer at East Anglia University, but she'll be known to many of you, and certainly is well known to me, as a really very interesting cultural commentator. Um, she's American um, by origin, but we've adopted her. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and so she makes the cross between that divide. And so Speaking Sarah... paternal. Yes. I've just been adopted. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you very much. First of all, I should apologize um, for using the computer. I don't normally do this, but um, I didn't have a printer, and I thought everybody would really appreciate it if I didn't attempt to extemporize at this hour uh, of the morning. So um, trust me, it'll be better if I uh, have some notes here. Um, as an American, I'm, I'm sometimes amused when uh, speaking to British conservatives if they refer to me as a liberal, um, because it gives me the opportunity to remind uh, them that an American liberal is in important ways uh, to the right of most Europeans. Um, Americans, as we all know, have a strong libertarian streak. We are fundamentally suspicious of government, and we like to think that that's for good reason. Um, it, it is, in fact, the case that must, much of American history, from uh, what you call the war for independence, which also amuses me, uh, and we, of course, always call the revolution, um, uh, through the Civil War, through uh, um, Prohibition, through McCarthy, and now to debates about health care reform, just to, to give one example, are in important ways a, a very um, uh, deep and fundamental conflict about the role of the, of the balance that David is talking about between the individual and society. And that's what the Civil War was fought over in, in, in fundamental kind of ways, not just about slavery, but about the rights of individual states to m make a di different decision from the, the federal uh, position and, and this notion of the individual and, and the individual rights always superseding the rights of the um, of the nation is something that I know that that non Europeans uh, non Americans sorry uh, and Europeans struggle with but it's very uh, important to the way that Americans uh, think about themselves <clears throat> and of course as we all know they don't really think very much about the rest of the world so. Um, and I also wanted to say that I'm glad to see that Alan is here because uh, I was interested in your talk uh, last night because I disagreed with a fair amount of it. Um, and, and I say that because I think that what we disagree with is often more interesting than what we agree with. Um, if what we agree with promotes a sense of redundancy or it promotes the, uh, the contempt of familiarity, whereas an idea that we disagree with promotes conversation, debate, thought, the necessity of clarifying one's own position, and, and hopefully trying to understand uh, the other person's position. In other words, disagreement is the mark of the individual within the group. It's a sign of independence of thought, potentially. Um, although, of course, for most of us, our thinking, although it may feel independent in one group, aligns with another group somewhere. Um, and, of course, tribal thinking and tribal allegiances are very much alive uh, within society today in the ways that Tim was just talking about. Arguably more powerfully, uh, I would think those kinds of tribal allegiances are more powerful now than they have been for many centuries. Um, in either uh, Anglo-American or European society. What I disagreed with in Ellen's remarks uh, most was when he said that communitarian life in general is more relaxing than individualistic life. And I would say with respect that that depends entirely on the individual. Um, and that communitarian life is more relaxing for a communitarian individual, but not for an individualistic one. Some of us find the homogeneity of Switzerland unbearable. Um, it, you know, and, and potentially uh, it's complacency. Um, now, that may sound like quibbling or like a cheap shot, but it's not, because these kinds of arguments are made on the basis of notional rather than real groups, because the attitudes and ideas of real groups are notoriously difficult to pin down. Um, why? Because groups are made up of individuals. 
The only way that we can arrive at ideas about groups is on the basis of stereotypes and generalizations, generalizations that precisely flatten out the differences among individuals and turn every individual into a type. David has met brash Americans, so one have I. One or two. I've also met brash British, um, although that's harder to say. Um, <laughs> F. Scott, F. Scott Fitzgerald famously said, begin with an individual and before you know it, you have created a type. Begin with a type and you find that you have created nothing. Types or groups or society, any phrase like that, or word, that's not even a phrase, uh, words, rapidly become metonymical, as we learned in the widespread discussions about the culpability of banks in the financial crisis. That always, again, it always startled me when people could start talking about the banks. Um, it seemed to me that the real failure to grapple with the causes of the crisis were in no small part enabled by what I think of as the evasion in this metonymy. Um, banks don't have agency. They don't make decisions. Individuals do. Individuals who work for banks make decisions. But in order to discuss a widespread behavior, we start talking about groups because we can't grasp individuals in their entirety in large numbers. That's the structure of the brain. We can't do it. So we have to have these words that enable us to do it, but then we start talking about uh, groups as if, we, as if there is groupthink, when, of course, we know that there isn't. So we resort to assumptions about groups, but groups very rarely, by definition, have the ability to speak for themselves or make their voices heard. And when they do, you don't get consensus. Um, it's a problem of scale and it's a problem of medium. Um, how do we actually get all of these people to express what their individual desires are um, if we even care about their individual desires and some people don't? Um, I do think that this, is, this problem is what's making uh, experiments like Twitter so interesting. Um, a lot of people think that Twitter is... Uh, is, is a, um, a negligible phenomenon or a trivial phenomenon. Um, but what it has done is, is um, created for millions of individuals the possibility of being heard as individuals simultaneously. It has become a kind of social or cultural and sometimes political or legal forum for referenda, um, as Mishkan Rea learned last year with the Trafigura uh, story. And I happened to be on Twitter when that broke, and it was absolutely fascinating to see. And it was actually really... Uh, from my point of view, it was uplifting and hard. I mean, it was really exciting. You watched that this was the power of the people in action. It was absolutely unbelievable. Um, and that gives individuals a group voice. That is an interesting moment um, uh, to me. Until we have more media like that, and, until, and it is interesting to me that people keep saying that Twitter is, is trivial. Well, um, uh, not you know, Jan Moore learned that it is not trivial. Um, until, until the point at which we have uh, a way of registering these kinds of individual differences and not flattening them out into assumptions about uh, uh, groups, uh, it seems to me that then we, we just get what we've always had uh, in a slightly different form, which is oligarchy. Uh, it used to be that oligarchs uh, were, were people whose power was derived from armies, um, was derived from land. Uh, now it's corporate and political oligarchies and, and a few Russian billionaires. Um, but in, in form, it hasn't really changed. What you have is a small group of powerful individuals who are making decisions, and everybody else is reduced to this notion of being uh, the mass. Um, we've all had the unedifying spectacle of individuals who are more dominant than the group uh, display that dominance. Um, and I will, as we are doing Chatham House rules, are we not? Uh, oh, no, we're being recorded. Then, then I won't say this. Um, <laughs> oh, go on. Uh, uh, all right, I will. Uh, being a brash American, um, there, you know, there, there are certainly those who think that Tony Blair uh, just demonstrated himself to be above the law. Um, there are those who, who think, uh, certainly, you know, this is a lot less controversial, um, Dick Cheney's brazen belief that he had no responsibility or accountability to the people who elected him. Um, I was also interested yesterday in, in Chris Patton's remarks about the, the desirability of American culture, um, and, and I wanted to at least pick up on that. Um, if American culture is desirable in the ways that he's saying, that that's something that people want to keep coming back to, it seems to me that that's in a large part um, because of the energy and rewards of a system based on a belief in individual agency and accountability. Now, that belief may be a fantasy that people may not actually have nearly as much agency in America as they think, which is um, uh, presumably Alan's point about life in, in L.A. not actually being very nice uh, uh, for most of the people in L.A. But I think even if it is a fantasy, we need that fantasy that we can succeed if we work hard enough, that work counts. Because if not, we lie down and give up, um, as we know from experiments with learned helplessness. If your actions have no agency, even a rap will stop acting. Politicians call it apathy. Helena just called it a sense of powerlessness and impotence. Psychologists call it learned helplessness. Call it what you like, but people stop acting if they don't think that their actions have any effects or any consequences. As an American, I was taught, as all American school children are, your liberty to swing your arms ends where my nose begins. 
Um, that is pretty much, I think, our notion of the greater good. Uh, we don't really go much farther than that to the notion of the greater good. Um, just don't harm others, and you can do pretty much what you like. Now, there's, again, this may be a fantasy. What you can do is, in fact, limited by economics, education, geography, family, obesity, you know, all kinds of things actually limit what you can do. But the belief in individual agency and accountability is crucial because learned helplessness, I would say, is the result of what Robin was just calling liberal paternalism. Um, a benign paternalism is not just problematic in terms of making what you're saying about how do we identify what the correct decision is, but my question is who's making that decision yeah. on, on my behalf? Um, who is the paternalistic or maternalistic uh, individual making these decisions? These decisions are therefore infantilizing, generalizing, making assumptions about me as a member of some mass polity. Um, liberal paternalism will not get my vote uh, ever, and, and it is the reason why the Americans who do uh, resist healthcare are resisting healthcare. And again, I know this is something that baffles most uh, Europeans. It seems so uh, against the, the self-interest of the individuals. Um, but they don't want other people making those decisions for them. And it does come down uh, uh, to that. You may not agree with that decision, but that's what it comes down to. It's not quite as wrong-headed. Um, I'll give one more example, and then I'll stop. Um, the debates about whether the police should be keeping the DNA of innocent people uh, in case they become guilty at some point. Um, <laughs> the arguments that I've heard made defending this um, have, uh, by, the, by the police, who, who you know, obviously are making a, a, strong, a strong case for why they think this needs to be done, are, are saying that this is always safe on the, because, um, because they say the, the government and the police will never misuse it. Well, I don't find that particularly reassuring, uh, even if I believe in the, in the benign paternalism of all of the people making those decisions. I say, what happens if the government ceases to be benign? Yeah. And that information is still there. We have all, not within my lifetime, but everybody here is only a generation away from uh, the, uh, you know, um, the example of, of a government that, uh, um, uh, I don't know how to even, I can't even characterize it. That's what I said, I can't extemporize at this hour of the morning, um, uh, of um, what people would do um, at the, in the middle of the century, let's say, um, not just in Germany, but in Russia and in China. I mean, one shudders to think what a, a Hitler or a Stalin would have done with such information. Once you've got a eugenic argument, um, and you, and, or, or somebody wants to make a eugenicist case, um, and start murdering people on the basis of their genetics, well then, you know, do you actually want to give somebody that weapon? Um, so I will, I will just, I'd like to end with two quotations. Um, one comes from uh, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde said, Art is individualism, and individualism is a disturbing and disintegrating force. There lies its immense value. For what it seeks is to disturb monotony of type, slavery of custom, tyranny of habit, and the reduction of man to the level of a machine. I'd like to end with another quote, which I won't attribute till I've finished it. It is thus necessary that the individual should finally come to realize that his own ego is of no importance in comparison with the existence of the nation, that the position of the individual is conditioned solely by the interests of the nation as a whole. And that quotation is from Adolf Hitler. And I will end by saying that I do recognize Godwin's law, that at the point, point at which you invoke Hitler, you have lost the argument. So I will, I will end there. Sarah, thank you. Um, David Davis has just popped out. He's doing the Today program. He's uh, it's not just like him call somebody a brash American and then piss off. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he'll be back for you to do with him. Uh, so he, he will be back. I'm, uh, you know, he'll be back in about ten minutes. So, um, but I'm going to open this out to the floor. Um, there's been fruit for a great deal of uh, interesting discussion. Um, who's wanting to come in? Alan, defend yourself. Well, um, of course. Um, of course, um, it's obvious that there are dangers to paternalism. But as um, we have a distinguished surgeon in our midst, um, there are cases where I question... I remember having a discussion with the great libertarian Andrew Roberts, and he was saying, if I don't want to wear a seatbelt, that is my right, and I can't bear someone telling me to wear a seatbelt. And he ostensibly drives around uh, uh, the country trying to prove his adherence to uh, liberalism by not wearing a seatbelt. Um, I wonder what people think about that. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's a failure to understand the distinction between good and bad paternalism. The point is, many of us, were, we, were all, we were all children, and we maintain childlike aspects to ourselves. And I think that one of the things the libertarians don't acknowledge is the continuance of childlike aspects within the individual. 
And what do children need? They need guidance. They also need to be restrained against their, some of their own wishes. Not be, and, and they themselves accept that. Sometimes when you discipline a child, the child is relieved. The child doesn't hate you for disciplining them. They are relieved that you have taken away their freedom. And I know that in some cases in my life, I've been relieved that someone has um, taken freedoms away from me. So it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's being too crude to say, if you take away someone's freedom, they will all, that is always a diminution of their possibilities. Sometimes um, we want our freedoms to be taken away so that we can be more free in other areas. Very interesting. Oh, come back. Sarah, I'll let you answer that because it's so directed at what you're saying. <laughs> I'll just say two, two things in response to that. Um, I would say that um, uh, in terms of whether he has the right to drive around without a seatbelt, um, uh, I'd say that's a Darwinian. Um, if, if, he, uh, if he wipes himself out, well, then, you know, he won't pass on that trait, and, and, and that's, uh, uh, that's fine. You know, I mean, he's not, he's not going to, you know, if, if the argument is that he won't survive that decision, well, let him not survive that decision. He's not harming anybody else. Well, he is um, harming doctors, the surgeons who have to pick him up, his family, blah, blah, blah. It's true. Well, see, again, I'm, I'm, I'm always, you know, coming, you know, forgetting about the NHS, right? Well, so, you know, he doesn't have, nobody has to pay for it, so yes, it's true. Um, as long as you've got the NHS and people have to pay for it, then it becomes, uh, then it does become more problematic. But that's, again, because of this presumption that society is going to be picking up the pieces for somebody who harms themselves. Um, the other, but the, my, other, my other response would be that this notion that some of us are children who need to be uh, uh, disciplined. Well, my problem is that then I'm being disciplined by other children. I don't, I, don't, I don't accept that I am going to be the child in the scenario and somebody else is going to be the adult in the scenario. So, uh, because if, we're all have, if we all have childlike aspects, well, then so do the people who are disciplining well, me. Sure, but at what point is somebody going to make the decision that I'm in a childish phase and I need to be uh, told what to do by somebody else? Um, so, I, I, th I think we're going to have to, to agree to disagree on, on that one. But again, I think that it comes down to the problem of who's going to be making these decisions, um, ceding that authority. No, 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 I'm not going to Sorry, let this, yeah, exactly. I'm not just going to let this be. But I am going to bring in Robin, because Robin did actually touch on this, because you were saying that actually the evidence is that people generally make bad decisions when they make them uh, in, a, in spontaneous I, ways. I wouldn't say they generally make bad decisions, but they make a lot of very poor decisions, because our decision-making brain is wired up to make very high-speed decisions with unconscious reflexes and not evaluate everything correctly. So, you know, if you give power to make all their own decisions, whether it's Andrew Roberts or other people, poor decisions are made. What I find interesting in this debate, and I hope maybe someone will pick up my point about the role of a new tool, namely the web, to bring transparency and to illuminate the issues that you two have been debating about, because I think we have evolved something that is a new contribution to this ancient argument. I'd love to hear people's views on that. Well, well Sarah mentioned that, in, that, for example, in Twitter, that you, you get this kind of thing, and the Jan Moyer thing is an example in the traffic year, but you also get bad stuff, which is that, you know, you can get collective huge polls wanting something where there's never been any kind of real discussion about what the, the, the ramifications of such changes, for example, in society could bring. So it's about whether there's deliberative debate in some of those new technologies or not. I'd like to bring in other people onto the, into this discussion. A hand down there, yes, please, in the corner. Yes, Claire. Um, uh, Claire Fox, Institute of Ideas. Um, I'm, I think I'm broadly on Sarah's side on, on this discussion. But... Um, I, I, I wanted to just... Uh, Don't forget the Hitler bit. <laughs> we heard the Hitler bit. <laughs> Clear. Um, no, I, what, what, I, what I wanted to sort of ask the paternalists is what they think happens if you do infantilise society. Because one of the problems that I have is, is that if you constantly erode agency, turn us into children, what you're effectively saying is that we can't trust ourselves. And it does seem to me that we then have a society that's entirely dependent always looking to someone else, Absolutely. <coughs> entirely irresponsible, <coughs> and through no fault of their own in the sense that they're kind of lost and, and had their agency diminished, uh, constantly, in a way, paralysed from any kind of sensible action. So, in fact, the decision about whether to put your seatbelt on or not becomes, I don't know what to do, I'll have to ask an expert. And first of all, I'm not very keen on half the experts that are telling us. Secondly, the seatbelt example is, of course, a, a great one. You know, we all say, oh, how mad is Andrew Roberts? And, of course, how mad is Andrew Roberts? But the, on, the other hand, on the other hand, there is a problem, which is, is that most of what I am told would be bad decisions. I mean, Robin says, if left to our own devices, we all make these terrible decisions. Actually, half, well, in fact, probably 80% of what I'm told would be a bad decision if I was allowed to make it on my own. I don't think it's a bad decision. 
I mean, I personally am not as worried or obsessed with the units of alcohol I drink as everybody else seems to be. Actually, sometimes I want to get drunk. I do not think that's a bad decision. I want to do it. I want to be irresponsible in as much as I want the freedom to make bad decisions. But often I don't even consider them to be bad decisions. The kind of normative, what makes a perfect parent, what makes a perfect person in, you know, New Labour Britain, are the kind of people that I would run miles to avoid. The most boring, anodyne, safe type of people in the world. It destroys risk-taking. So what I would like to ask really is... I suppose I just don't want to live in the society organised by the paternalists, either the type of people who have lost all their agency or are making all the right decisions as defined by a very small group of elite and the kind of decisions that I don't actually think makes a healthy society and makes us risk-averse and paralysed. Stefan Szymanski from Cass Business School. I would maybe follow on a little bit from what Claire was saying, which is that it strikes me that one, one of the, the issue here is a lot of, has a lot to do with people discussing is a problem of wealth, that because we are... These, these are not problems... A lot of the problems that have been raised are not problems that people discuss in very poor societies uh, where there's um, really more fundamental needs are being, have to be addressed and have to be concerned with. And a lot of what we're discussing has to do with about insurance, really, and about how, given the state of wealth that I've got, how do I insure myself against risk that I might lose status or lose power or position? And I think well, one of the ways to ask the question of, of both sides of the argument here is to say, well... Um, presumably everybody agrees that individuals should be free to buy as much private insurance as they like. The question is, how much social insurance should be provided? Is it, is, should we have a lot of it, or is, is there no role for the state to insure the individual against bad outcomes? Or when, where does that insurance end? Does it end with health service? Does it end with education? Or does it end with telling people you know, that they have to wear seatbelts? Or where, where is the limit to that social provision of insurance against the risks um, that you run when you become a wealthy individual. Where is the limit? This paternalistic um, sense, and because corporations are often thought of as paternalistic, are telling consumers what to behave and what to do and what to sell and what to buy. Nothing could be further from the truth. Um, the, the, the constant battle in large organisations to get an edge on what the consumer wants and how you can better cons uh, serve the consumer rather than what you can sell them, that is the extraordinary battle. We're fighting constantly to get an edge over how we can understand what consumers want so we can give it to them. It isn't about what can we sell to them. I mean, no matter how good our marketers are, for instance, like, like rubbing, if it's a crap product, it's a crap product. We have to try and find an edge. So it is the collective whole who are kind of driving what we want. Um, a small point on, on, um, on behaviour. Um, I'm now at the age where my children save me from my, my decisions. Um, they, they help me with my dress sense. They wouldn't have allowed me out today, by the way. Um, so, so the balance moves quite quickly. But the last point I want to make is on DNA, which is because this is where the debate in, in Port Myron in 20 years' time will be quite considerably different. Um, the amount of uh, benefit we will get as individuals, the more we give away is going to be growing exponentially in pretty much every single part of our lives. It is now pretty impossible to choose the right mobile phone tariff. Just, there's too many permutations to do that. Therefore, the more information you give to an organization of your behavior and your family's behavior, the more someone will get you the right tariff. That's just one small thing. But think about your DNA, a swab or a little file, and perhaps in 20 years' time, a, uh, a pharma company or even a consumer goods company will help you eat and consume products which are better for you. So how much liberty are you prepared to give away to an organisation, a faceless bureaucrat or whatever, if there's a, if there's a quantifiable benefit? And I think that we're kind of the foothills of very kind of intellectual argument about liberty and freedom. And I don't think we understand what the consequence is going to be in about, in about a decade or so's time. Yes, uh, Stefan Stern from the FT. Um, I just wanted to help David with a thought, actually. Uh, you, you were talking about... Um, the mental state of mind when you, had, you were sort of shrugging your shoulders. And I just want to suggest that, perhaps surprisingly, that you had temporarily become French. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's an unlikely... It's an exclusive. Um, I, I view that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> not just on blue plaque terms, either. Well, <laughs> so, I have... I live, David, I live in Collier's Wood, so, you know, freedom for tooting, but I haven't seen your blue plaque yet, but uh, it must be coming. We've got to the blue pill, I'm afraid. I'm uh, right. <laughs> the question was, um, Twitter, we heard about Trafigura, which is a very, very interesting example, and indeed, sorry to bring it back to media lovey land, but it seems possible that someone was 
denied the job of becoming editor of The Independent recently by mm. a similar that also fascinating to campaign on, on Twitter and yeah. Facebook. So I want to ask, sort of in, in support of Robin's basic point, I mean, is there anything that Twitter can't do? Make money. <laughs> <laughs> so far. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, I don't know if anybody here, uh, anybody else at the table is on Twitter. I mean, in, you know, in real sense, is actually, you know, actively engaged in it. Um, I am, and I, I find it fascinating, as, I, as I've already said. Um, but that was a very interesting campaign to watch as well. And it, and it was actually the, the group that I follow is the group that was one of the individuals driving this campaign. Um, who is, I, I understand now, possibly in the running for the editorship, um, which is an interesting outcome. Um, we, we were talking on the, on the bus right here uh, yesterday quite... It was actually really interesting um, how much of our seven-hour conversation kept circling back to this question about the individual in society. Um, but one of the... Th and, and we were talking about all kinds of things. We were talking about banking. We were talking about education. We were talking... But everything kind of it keeps... Because, it, in a sense, it's such a fundamental question. Um, but one of the things that we kept talking about as well was unintended consequences and, and which is, you know, in a sense picking up on Tim's point. I mean, we don't, we, it's not just that we can't see the consequences, but that there are so many un unintended consequences for our short-term ad hoc decisions that then, um, and I think that's where we are with Twitter, is that, is that we can't yet see its limits and we can't yet see, you know, we don't know how to monetize it. We don't know, you know, uh, but it seems clear that people will figure that out at some point. Um, what can't it do, um, well, again, it's still only about it, it. Only works on scale, so that the the traffic gear thing only only happened because so many people uh, said the same thing, effectively, um, and they said it so fast and they said it so uh, vehemently, um, fearlessly. and fearlessly, absolutely, but, but exactly because there was this kind of protection of, of anonymity at the same time, and there was this sense that everybody could say it because nobody could be in, uh, prosecuted for it. You know that that, that it was free speech in action. And uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, what's Spartacus? Um, so I think that um, the, the problem is that still, that one individual lone voice is still a voice crying in the wilderness. It's still a voice just, and then you're just tweeting, and then you are back in the trivia uh, uh, argument. So it's still only going to work um, uh, on that large scale, which is a fairly banal observation. But I, I think that, that it, is, it is far too early to see the limits of what, of what Twitter can do, but I, I, to go back to the John Moore story or the or the independent um, point, uh, the Rod Little story, that um, that there is already a worry now about freedom of speech and about bullying, if you like, on Twitter. That is it is it then going to just create um, this this consensus of, of you know political correctness and this kind of uh, um, uh, 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 reify a particular position, and then suddenly it, it becomes fascistic in its own way and is actually enforcing um, this well, point of view on others. I mean, I, I'm going to take a little liberty as, uh, from the chair in that, you know, um, um, for example, on the independent thing, and I say this as somebody who, who's on the board of the independent, it is an interesting thing that um, um, somebody is being proposed for an editorial ship. And whatever anybody feels about someone, would, you know, there's a general, the, the, you know, people sort of applauded the idea that somebody's uh, 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 tender for that role was eliminated by Twitter. But would we feel so comfortable if it was someone that we particularly thought was uh, the right person <coughs> to be exactly. leading an independent newspaper? Um, would, you know, how do we feel about the power that comes from, in fact, what ends up being quite a small number of people Absolutely. exercising such huge influence? And so if you're talking about, you know, oligarchies, or, you know, we, we end up with another kind of power which has, has fascistic possibilities. Absolutely. But, but it's visible. But it's visible. I'd, I'd like to ask, you know, in the, I'd raise this point about transparency and in, inside the political process. I'd love to hear your perspective because I, I believe that had we had the transparent system that's coming into place about expenses and everything else in government, that situation wouldn't have arisen. Yeah. And that if, if that, that that is a real protection, and we you know, we need, you know, it may be that you say Twitter is a small group of people making a decision about the entry of the independent. It's a bigger group than made the last decision about the entry of the independent. <laughs> I know, and we may not like it, but it, when it's open, when it's discussed, when it's visible, we get protected. And the fact that we don't always like those decisions, the really important point is that they're open and they're visible. So I'd love to know what yeah. it was like from the transparency yeah. ice storm. Well, well I mean, let, let me start. I mean, I have a prejudice against Twitter. I think some of it, anyway, is infantilizing in, in, in its approach. But uh, let me just make one uh, generic point here, because it was interesting when I came in, this, this point was sort of being touched on. The reason markets are associated with progressive countries is because progress is a discovery process. 
It's about finding the best way forward. And so things like Twitter, in fact, the entire Internet phenomenon uh, across the board ought to be a progress accelerator. So that's, that's the sort of point one, because it's a discovery process. But I have to say that the other half of my life in, in the, on, the, on the sort of civil liberty side of things, which hopefully is only a fraction, um, is, uh, is about dealing with mob rule. You know, the number, I mean, I am really, really unpopular with the Sun newspaper because I will not, under any circumstances, go along with naming paedophiles. Why? Because I don't believe in lynch mobs. You know? uh, now, what we've seen here is a slow-motion, low-level low lynch mob in terms of the particular person for a job. I don't know who it was or what it was about, but, but I don't approve of that at all. Not at all. So transparency, fine. Uh, the more transparency, the better, I agree, but we've got to have some rules about this too. And I don't know what they are at the moment. I mean, I, I'm a believer that uh, the law is the structure of liberty, that, that, that it actually makes liberty bearable, makes liberty work. Uh, and I, and uh, on Twitter, I just feel that there is such scope here for mass bullying, mass lynch mobs. Uh, and I think that's quite dangerous, actually. Um, you know, cause, and it's like, it's like so many things, isn't it? I mean, like nuclear power. It's got huge capacity for good and huge capacity for evil. And, we've got them, and, and separating them is going to be one of those optimizing tricks that I was talking about earlier. Sorry, it's a rather serious no, answer. No, no. But no, so. It is a serious and important issue. Right, please, yes. Hello, I'm Cosmo Landisman. I'm a journalist. Um, I want to ask you a phrase I keep hearing throughout this, this weekend has been the notion of this breakdown in trust and how we can rectify it with transparency and making voices heard. But no one ever stops to ask the question, is this breakdown in trust a reality? Is something real, something deserved? Or is it a media-generated idea? I'll give you an example. The recent scandal over politicians' expenses. The vast majority of politicians are actually just basically decent, hard-working guys who just get on with it. And you had a few cases, of very high-profile cases, that created the whole tainted notion. So we've all come to sense, the consensus view is that there is a real breakdown in trust, and it's founded on very good reasons. But maybe that breakdown in trust is not founded on very good reasons, that by and large our institutions and our political classes actually work pretty well, and that we shouldn't give in to this idea that it's all broken down and we must pander to the people and say, let your voices be heard. If we just give the people access and accountability, everything will be all right. I think that's a very superficial analysis. I think we should step back and challenge this whole idea, especially at a conference like this. Thank you. Tim, please. There are a lot of surveys on um, um, declining trust, and one of the most well-known is the Edelman one. There's some Edelman people in the in the conference today, you can pick it up with. I don't think there's anybody here. And they've been um, measuring trust against most organizations uh, uh, and institutions and, and, and um, in most countries for a couple of decades now, and it is inexorably declining. And there are reasons for that. One is because uh, transparency means people are more able to see how these people behave. But the other one, actually, I think, is that... Is the, is the, the, the opportunity to get source of information from places other than that place are increasing. So that makes sense. So you, so you may not, you, you, before you only had the BBC to get your news from. Now there are so many multiple places. You can choose which you prefer and which you trust most. So it's a, it's a question, one, of just society generally uh, changing its mores, but also the opportunity to go elsewhere for information. Could, could it be, I mean, there's a question almost, uh, that, that it comes back to your 150-person village living, that we know too much now. I mean, in a 150-person village, our brains are well, well adapted to, to adding up and bouncing off all the difficult information. But at the moment, we've got va vastly more information, and therefore our natural tendency to that is to be cautious. And what's to be cautious? To be cautious, to be distrusting. Well, the point is that 150-person limit, you knew everything about everybody else. Everybody. Yeah. Trust is needed because we don't know everything about everybody else. And when we discover more of these things, we discover it's not what we thought it was, therefore the trust decays. Yeah. You know, the, their instincts are right and their values are right. But they don't trust politicians because trust, politicians won't hang pedophiles because they won't bring back hanging or they'll stop immigration. What about that sort of thing? You don't say, oh, that's okay, let's just trust the people then when it's on issues like that that defy the liberal consensus. Then you suddenly get a bit worried. Can I just say also, uh, and I, I largely agree with, with uh, Cosmo about that, but also that this idea that, that trust is necessarily, uh, um, a, a, as, as Hamlet says, a consummation devoutly to be wished. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I think skepticism is actually fairly healthy. Um, skepticism admits of persuasion. Skepticism isn't radical disbelief. It's just 
is saying I'm not necessarily going to be credulous either. So it seems to me that you know we can say oh, distrust and suspicion, this is a bad thing. But if you start calling it skepticism and you start you know, saying that this is just something that, that actually just says, all right, well, first you've got to persuade me. Um, that doesn't seem to me particularly objectionable. And it actually seems to me like a very, a very good p- position for individuals in society to we take. We don't have skepticism. We have a kind of uh, shallow, knee-jerk cynicism of our, our, our political culture now. Uh, when we say all politicians are rubbish, we don't even make the effort that's, to that's fine. evaluate That's people. fine. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's fine. Look, uh, I mean, I don't think... I, I, I clearly didn't articulate it very well when I first uh, used the word, because I think this is an asymmetric process. I want to see scepticism from population to government and trust from government to people. Uh, and, and so I was not talking so much about uh, people taking a different view to me to the ones they took to MPs in the uh, 18th and 19th century when you had all those wonderful cartoons with you know, various unpleasant things like turds being represented as the politicians. You know, the, um, the, the, that, so that's not new. What I'm, my, well, my comment about trust is that actually what we have now is a distrusting structure in society, which means they've got to check up on you all the time. So my view on trust is trust is important downwards and scepticism is important upwards. I think that's the perfect place to end. Um, uh, because you know, we have some nice aphorisms to go away with. <laughs> Um, but I want to thank everybody for because I've been told to wind us up and it is the, the, the witching hour for this breakfast. But I mean, take those threads into the next discussions because I think that whole issue of, of trust and, as you say, liberal consensus where trust doesn't exist about trusting the people, how do you make those kind of decisions? And where does, uh, if you're talking about drawing lines, where does trust of the people stop um, and, uh, and, and paternalism? somehow become acceptable, and it goes back to some of the things that Alan was talking about. Thank you all. Very interesting discussion. It was great having you here, and onwards and upwards. Bye.